0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I get to introduce Peter Fenton, who's the one on the left. (laughs) Peter was a student here um, in the 1990s as an undergraduate, As a philosophy major, which really makes me happy to report, a humanities major. He goes on to get an MBA here at Stanford and then enters the venture capital industry. First seven years of of being in that industry was at a firm called Accel Partners, where you may have heard of from Facebook and folks like that. But then, about seven years, six, seven years ago, um, he became a partner at Benchmark Capital and has been involved in a Tremendous number of hits and successes there, including Yelp and OpenTable and others, and uh, w- something I know you've heard about, Twitter. So, uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to Peter. Peter, thank you.
1: <clears throat> so Tom threw me a curveball and said a couple of weeks ago, "Hey, we've got a change of plans. Can you fill in um, for?" The gentleman from OPower that couldn't make it today. And I, you know, I thought the last thing you guys would want to hear from is another venture capitalist. And, and so I tried to put myself into your shoes and say, you know, who would I want to have come talk? And and the about oh, a millisecond later, Jess Lee popped into my mind. Jess had just won the fortune um, 40 under one of the 40 under 40. I can't remember what number she was, but something approach in the 30s, maybe the 20s. Um, and there are really two reasons. Uh, the first is that Jess, like, like myself, sat in your seat. In her case, it was eight years ago in 2004. She took this class. She took this class. I, I, I crashed this class a couple of times. Um, but, but Jess is, is what we affectionately call in our industry a rising star. And we, we spend a lot of time idolizing the people who have arrived, and I think not enough time studying people in their, in, in their ascendancy to greatness. And, There's so many things you can learn from a first-time CEO and how they go about it. Um, What's cool about Jess is that it's immediately accessible. So she faced the same questions, the the same challenges, angsts and and anxieties that you may face right now in your career going into it. And so I thought what a perfect opportunity to to talk to one of the rising stars, someone we'll be writing books about I think maybe in two or three decades and um, (laughs) they'll attribute back to this, some of the ideas back to what you might hear today. Um, but, But first let me spend a second on a company Jess is part of, Polyvore. Um, Benchmark invested in Polyvore in 2008, about the same time Jess joined the company, and it's a very simple thesis, which is Polyvore is doing to the fashion magazine industry what Wikipedia has done to the Encyclopedia Britannica. It is truly the creative destruction of a existing industry with a modern, empowered consumer model, which I think is going to change every category of media that we know. Um, it's happened at at Wikipedia, at Yelp, at TripAdvisor, at IMDb um, and Polyvore is doing it in the fashion market. So um, what does that mean? Well, there's a value chain in any industry and in the media industry, the value chain was content, uh, editorial, distribution, advertising. And along came the internet and we gave people a voice and instead of content being this you know, creative types that wear turtlenecks that you have to pay a lot of money to, it was the community. In empowering the community and giving them a voice, instead of a value chain, it created a set of concentric circles, where at the center of it there is a human being creating beautiful content. Uh, That community curated the content and they curate that at Polyvore, at Yelp, at at Wikipedia and that draws in the readership. Um, So instead of having to print magazines and push them out on shelves, people naturally come to your site, either through Google or they download your application. Uh, And then monetization, the really powerful thing is that the advertising is actually endemic to the experience. So the ad is the content. Polyvore is an example of one of the companies that I think we'll look back on, and you look at Vogue, InStyle, Lucky, Cosmopolitan, all collapsed into one company. So um, the numbers are compelling. Uh, The company has double-digit millions of revenue. It's got triple-digit growth. It's cash flow positive. Um, And so it's one of these rising success stories. Probably doesn't get as much press as Pinterest. Uh, I think the companies are different. But um, the the structural advantages of the business lead us to think about a multi-billion dollar company. the the story of Jess becoming the CEO, we'll spend a little bit of time on, but it's one of those magical stories in my career where there was an act of selflessness uh, from Pasha, the then CEO and, and now CTO of the company, co-founder with Jess. Um, really, selflessness combined with a deep ambition about the company's long-term opportunity. And Pasha called me oh in about this time last year in in, in two thousand ten and said, or two thousand eleven and said. Yeah, I've got a, kind of a, an idea you may or may not like, kind of a crazy idea, uh, what if we made Jess the CEO? And, and as a director, you're like, oh, what's going on? You know, you're know, you disoriented, you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I help Pasha, what's he, he had a bad day. And, um, and I thought about it and it was like <laughs> thinking about Jess for today, it, it was immediately obvious and within moments the board unanimously, once they found out, had the same reaction I did. Within moments it was clear that Jess was the natural CEO of the company. And a lot of what we do in the venture business is identifying the potentials of a CEO, because we, we typically back first-time CEOs, people who haven't done it before. And, and I would assert there's three traits that, that really define, in my experience, the successful first-time CEO, and they're, they're visible in Jess and hopefully we'll hear about some of them today. The, the first, which we'd seen in our experience working with her, is that Jess is a learn-it-all and not a know-it-all. And it's challenging when you get into a CEO role, it's a job known if it's a first-time CEO, you've never done it before. And if you're a know-it-all, you begin to immediately think you have to have the answer for everything. And you can't ask for input and advice. You quickly get in the water way over your head and you're likely to drown. And, and, and Jess had proven to us that she knew how to raise her hand and ask questions, but she was a sponge for information. I saw the same thing, by the way, at Excel when we spent time with Mark Zuckerberg at the beginning, voracious appetite to learn. Um, the second trait, which I think is quite rare in human beings, is a a clear aptitude at building the system that builds the system. And oftentimes if you're a VP in a company, you focus on your narrow area and you just say, okay, I'm going to do my job, I'm a player on the field, I'm going to crush it. Very rarely do you get someone who says, how does my job relate to all the other jobs in the company, and what's the operating system of the business? And, And Jess had shown to us that she had a way to think about that at a more broad level. Um, because as a CEO, you no longer are evaluated, are you a good VP of X, Y, or Z, you're evaluated on the underlying system that you've built. Um, Jack Dorsey likes to say you know, his, his focus is on building the, the, the product that is the company, not the product that is the thing that gets shipped every day. Of course, that's a byproduct of it. But um, and Jess, Jess had demonstrated an aptitude through her ability to identify parts of the company that weren't working well, identifying friction points, trying to remove those friction points and so a clear trait of a, of a successful first-time CEO. The third thing, which to me is the romantic thing, the, the visionary thing, the thing I'm most drawn to, is clarity of purpose. And, and, and Jess said to me when we talked, we were having some conversations of, you know, does she want to do this or not? And, and when she talked about polyvore, she started with the people in the community whose lives were changed by it, and it was never about Jess. It was about th- this is a service that is taking people in Des Moines, p- taking people in Rio de Janeiro, turning them into the vanguard in the fashion industry. They could never do this without Polyvore. And the purpose and mission of the company of empowering people to transform the way they discover fashion, the way they buy fashion, uh, boy, that, that was magnetic. And you know, you've heard about this from other people who've come here, it's like you have to tell a story at a company, you need an epic story that draws people in, it's the way Jack talks about it. The CEO is the editor in chief and if they don't have a clarity of purpose and ability to motivate and inspire what's possible, what happens? what happens if we get it right? Um, and, and Jess had done that. There's a great, if you guys ever get a chance, uh, Google her for a New Yorker article. Jess had, had a, a, there was a PolyFor article uh, in New Yorker, because we invest in the company. We say, hey, one day someone's going to write a story about this company that talks about some people whose lives you've, tra- you've, ch- you've transformed. Because today, to get ahead at, at Vogue, you got to go play politics on Madison Avenue, backstab maybe, but let's just say, you know, climb your way to the top. And where someone sitting in a, in a, in a room, uh, you know, in the Midwest that has a, fantastic fashion sensibility is just shut out of the dialogue. Your company's changed that and, and people are going to want to write about that. And, and so Jess in that story, she wasn't the CEO at the time, uh, the story was really about, about Jess even though it was about Polyvore. So those three traits I think you, know, you, you can go to all the different skills of the CEO, some are execution oriented, some are you know, great relationship people, some are great visionaries. Jess was the full package from our standpoint as the first time CEO. Um, the brief background, then we'll jump into some questions. She was born in Hong Kong, um, came to Stanford in 2000, and uh, went to Larkin. Was her anyone from Larkin and had their freshman dorm? Oh. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, again, took this class, graduated in, in, from computer science in 2004. Um, then faced the big choice of what next. Went to Google, was a um, sensational product manager. And I, I'd first heard about Jess from Brett Taylor who was the, recently the CTO at, at, at Facebook um, and Brett said, when he started his company, FriendFeed, there's one person we have to hire out of Google uh, and it's Jess Lee. So that's that's great, but she just contacted another investment we made and asked for a job, <laughs> so, um, which was polyhore. So it was one of these serendipitous moments, but I, you know, Brett maybe still hasn't forgiven me. Um, and and uh, as I say, she's been identified by a number of people in our world as at 30 years old, one of the truly great rising star CEOs. And so it will be a really fun set of questions today. As you guys think about your own careers and the questions that Jess faced and how she answered them, I think there's a high relevance. So with that, welcome Jess. And um, so let me ask you, start with the question of when you were in this seat in 2004, did you imagine you would be up here at some point?
2: No. So my, my background, um, so I, like Peter mentioned, I, I grew up in, in Hong Kong and I actually, in my senior year of high school, I told my parents, like, hey, I want to go to art school. I'm going to draw comic books for a living. And my parents said, no, no way. They're Asian, so that was not an
0: <laughs> acceptable
2: life choice. So <laughs> um, I ended up coming to, to Stanford, and uh, I ended up majoring in computer science because I discovered I really liked to build things that people could use. My favorite class here was CS248, the, the graphics video game class. and. Um, Then I ended up at Google. I sort of uh, became a product manager. I was doing, you know, basically using my my engineering degree um, as a a product manager. But then one day, someone showed me Polyvore. And it was just sort of like love at first sight. So I I mean, I didn't come up with the original idea for Polyvore. All the credit goes to um, my three co-founders, Pasha, Guangwei, and Jianing. They, uh, Pasha in particular, came up with the idea. He started to build it. They launched something and then someone showed me the site. And I was just completely in love. I was playing with it two or three hours at night, just hopelessly, hopelessly addicted. And then, um, you know, I I sent an email to Posh. I didn't know him at the time, and I just said, "Hey, this site is incredible." Um, I have a lot of ideas, some suggestions. I wasn't actually asking for a job, but I just, it's just sort of a user like writing in complaining about stuff, so I wrote my list of complaints. He thought
1: you were, that was this, <laughs> uh, begging for a job.
2: <laughs> um, and then he wrote back and said, hey, why don't we get coffee? And so we met for coffee and then we mm-hmm. all clicked and then I sort of ended up leaving Google. And I never yeah. imagined that I would be here. Yeah, never, I mean, I went into it thinking, okay, I've always wanted to be. I've always wanted to do a startup. My, my mom happens to be an entrepreneur. Um, she runs a small interpretation yeah. translation business in, in Hong Kong. So a very small business. Um, but I, I always knew I wanted to do my own thing. And I thought, hey, Polyvore is just a way for me to learn about startups. I mean, I learned a lot at Google, yeah. but the rate of learning sort of went down as I got more and more used to what I was doing there, and the company got bigger. Um, so I thought, okay, this will be a way that I will learn everything I need about a startup and then I'll go do my own thing. And then it became my own thing. So I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I wasn't there from the very beginning of Polyvore, but yeah. um, the other three founders, they sort of made me an honorary co-founder after a couple of years because we just, I mean, we did everything together. From the very beginning, you know, mm-hmm. when there was, we were working out of Pasha's living room and you know, finally we had to find an office, like finding an office space, like, the toilet breaks and everything's water's overflowing. Like every little thing, you have to deal with in the early days of a startup. We just, you know, had to do that together.
1: So going going back to the decision to go to Google, I, I suppose a lot of people wonder: Do you do you go to a startup or do you go to a um, established company? And I know for Google is not yet public or about to go public.
2: Um, it was not public at the time.
1: Okay, so yeah, it was a
2: slightly before. <laughs>
1: slightly before, but probably you knew it was going to going to be a good company. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us about that decision and, and whether or not, in hindsight, you think it was the right, the right move. And um, I guess along those lines, mm-hmm. the mentors you found at Google and, and how they impacted your, your career.
2: Sure. Um, so I actually, when I finished, when I graduated, or right before I graduated here um, with a degree in computer science, I thought, hey, I'm going to be an engineer. That's what computer science majors do. And I didn't even know what a product manager was at that time. So I got an offer from Intuit and I was going to go be an engineer there. And then I got a call from a Google recruiter saying, hey, we have this thing called the Associate Product Manager program, uh, which I highly recommend <laughs> if anyone's thinking about that path. Um, and it was you sort of a- You Associate Product
1: <laughs> <laughs> Manager.
2: Um, but it was a, a, a program to train product managers straight out of school. And it was created by Marissa Mayer, who's now the, the CEO of, of Yahoo. Um, and so I thought, OK, you know, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I don't know what PMs are. <laughs> so I went to the interview not really knowing what to expect. And I remember, I actually was so green at the time that when I spoke to Marissa, I was like, hey, I don't know if I really want this job. Like, this is very, you know, I never imagined that I would do this. And she explained to me that uh, all the best decisions she had ever made in life when she had to choose between two things, she always chose the path that was more challenging. And so I thought about that and I decided, hey, you know what, I've always planned to be an engineer, but this PM thing sounds really hard. (laughs) I have to lead teams of engineers who are much older than me, who know their know their stuff, and, and I don't. I'm fresh out of school, so I decided to just to to try it based on her advice. And she did become a mentor, and has sort of we've kept in touch all these years. And she was a big, big influence on my entire career path through Google. Yeah. Um, I I look back on that and I think, well, I could have started maybe at a startup out of school, but the great thing that being at Google provided was um, well, there's a few things. One, I got to meet a lot of really, really smart people, some of whom you know, have gone on to do amazing things in Silicon Valley and some of whom I've gotten to join Polyvore because we work together. So you sort of build your network at a larger company. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is just the experience of being at a larger company and seeing all the, the benefits which are having infrastructure, you know, there's an IT guy to help you when you, everything is, you know, your computer, everything is broken, the network's down, um, the great perks of cult, the culture, the food, all that stuff, <laughs> I got to experience that. And Google does have a really, really great culture. Yeah. It's very engineering driven. Um, But then I also got to experience the downsides of a big company like Red Tape, bureaucracy, having to work the system to get launches approved. So I got to see both sides, and then I was able to take that experience and apply it at Polywar when we were creating our own culture and our own sort of infrastructure. Uh, It it made me really able to appreciate uh, how nice it is to be on a really small team where you just get stuff done really quickly. There's no communication overhead. You know everybody. You know everyone's significant others. Like all the great things about startups that are small. I... I was able to appreciate that so much more yeah. because I'd been at a larger company.
1: In part of my... my uh, one of the benchmarks, founding partners, Andy Ratcliffe, has a great post on this, which is that people going to a, a successful company like a Google, you know, call it midlife, about to go public or just went public, tend to get more credit than they deserve for the success of the company. And those that go to a startup company where it fails, they tend to get more blame than they deserve. Mm-hmm. So you know, put another way, I think the move, if, if you think of it, in developing a career of going to a success story, there are actually far fewer ways to succeed, in my experience, than there are to fail. Mm-hmm. And I'm not clear what you learn from failure. Um, <laughs> there are certain <laughs> personal lessons you get out of it. But success is its own unique breed of an education. And in, in going to a successful company and today you could say it'd be a Dropbox or a Twitter or a, um, one could argue is Facebook past that point, I don't know. But um, I think it's a pretty good proxy for you know, getting experience of hyperscale Successful, um, you, you know, culture, and you internalize that. In, and yeah. in theory, the, the the flip side is staying there too long. And you know, oftentimes you stay somewhere too long. You just start to get the groundwater gets into your um, your being, where you start to assume everything is sort of like Google. And and so I want to talk a little bit about that transition because it's a pretty abrupt shift to go from you know the high flying Google to the backed up toilet poly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and did you j- just the, the the decision itself? Did you did you fret over it? And um, I know you didn't come over overnight because you seemed to wait about six months. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you think about that transition? And, and maybe you know, what did it feel like for the first phase being in a, in a, in a raw startup?
2: Yeah. Um, so the, the two things that I was thinking about were, you know, I want to go to some work on something that I'm passionate about. And I was already so addicted to Poly. I was using it like literally two or three hours a night. I was a member of the community making lots of sets or collages. Um, So that was one thing that that checked that box. The other thing was I wanted to go, besides like always picking the more challenging path, the other thing that I find useful is to think about maximizing your learning. And I knew that I learned a lot, I learned so much in my first year at Google. Like I had never led any teams, like I had poor communications, because like all, all sorts of things I learned in my first year at Google. But then the rate of learning sort of tapered off. And so I decided, okay, I need to go somewhere where I'm going to learn so much all at once. And Polyvore, by virtue of being so small and only having you know, engineers, I knew that there was going to be a ton of things to, to learn. Like We needed to do a lot of things. We needed to find an office space. <laughs> we needed to create a revenue model. And I just knew that there would be space and freedom and opportunity for me to, to do some of those things there. So that's why I ended up choosing Polyvore. It wasn't an easy decision. I remember when I went to signed the offer on that day. I was like, what am I doing, Wait, have I made a decision? And then I signed it and I walked out and I was like, oh, no, what did I just do? <laughs> so it wasn't you know, crystal clear, but it was like one of the best decisions I've ever made for sure.
1: Did you ever in that first phase of acclimating think you made a big mistake?
2: No, I actually have never thought that about Polyboard. There's always been enough positive momentum I mean, it hasn't all been you know, you read about a lot of companies in TechCrunch and you think, wow, it's all up and to the right and it's so easy. It's not easy. Like, even when things are going well, there's like still lots of moments of unhappiness. Mm-hmm. I actually just wrote a blog post about this, um, why startup founders are always so unhappy, um, if you want to check it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely, it was definitely hard and in the yeah. beginning, but in the beginning it was hard and we had no traction and we were small, but at the same time, um, it was so fun to just continually learn things. I was so excited to learn about mm-hmm. um, Mountain View real estate prices versus Palo Alto and you know that just made it sort of, that, that right. sustained it, sustained me. And then I realized after some time, maybe I should have hired a professional <laughs> to do some of these things and focused on the, the things that mattered more. But you know, I, I, I've immensely enjoyed all of Polyvore. Fantastic.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the transition to CEO and um, one of the just, just to call out, and Jess has, has mentioned that she's an uh, honorary founder. Jess is a founder of Polybor, there's no question. I think one of the things that we, we um, you know, Jack Dorsey's spoken of this. We tend to use the term as though it has some sort of magical power. Like, well, if you're a founder, then, like, you know, everything's different. But we're all human beings, and we all are founders in our own way of things, initiatives, things you take on. And I think it gets overly sensationalized. And um, Jess was, from the beginning, the soul of the product. You know, I think it was very clear to us. You know, as, they, as we talk about her becoming a co-founder, we're like, "Well, of course she's a co-founder." Um, the company actually aggressively pushed equity on onto Jess to, to, to reflect that, which I thought was very. This is after the fact, really illustrative of the culture the company has. Um, but the transition to CEO is a is a big one, and you know, the statistics are most people don't make it successfully. Um, I don't. I don't want to jinx it, so knock on wood. But you've you really, in a way that I haven't seen in my venture career, taken to the role. Could you tell us about how it's different, and you know a little bit about where, you, where did you want the role, um, and now that you're in it, you know how does it change your world?
2: Mm. Well, so one of my co-founders and I, Pasha, like we have always done a lot of like done a lot of the leadership together, like, and we sort of found our natural niches for what we were good at. Peter gives me too much credit. Like I think I am one of the users of the site. Like I like, you know, I like to shop, I like fashion, so I think about the product that way. But what Pasha brilliant at is designing architecting systems and thinking about like the feedback loops and just sort of the way the product works from a systems design perspective. So I think the combination of those two things is really the soul of, of what made Polyvore's product take off. Um, in terms of the, the transition, the way we'd always split responsibilities was, um, You know, he was responsible for engineering. I was our product manager, but he's also a brilliant product guy. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, as we started to add more people to the team, um, like we added a sales team, we added, you know, finance and people operations, recruiting, it just naturally fell to me that those people just ended up reporting into me and engineering was reporting into him. And so as we grew and the other parts of the company grew, it just became more of a natural transition. And it's exactly what um, Peter was referring to. It's about the, the company becomes the product, not just product, you know, the website or the app um, and I, I rea- we realized both of us, Pasha and I, that the role of the CEO was shifting from being less about just building the product but building the team that builds the product. And so that naturally became more my purview. I was always one of, always recruiting for us. So it felt like a pretty natural transition yeah. and we, we discussed it and we decided, all right, let's do it. But I never went into Poly we were ever expecting this to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: It's an interesting thing, which just makes the comment. She's like, well, I wasn't looking for this. And I, there, if I could be simple about it, there are kind of two types of people that come to this, the role of CEO, those that want to be CEO and those that, uh, if you will, earn the title. Uh, and I think founders inherently, when they're founder CEOs, earn the title because they, they took the initiative. But uh, it's a red flag for us as venture capitalists when someone shows up at our office and says, I'm really ready to be a CEO, so I'm looking for CEO opportunities. I'm like, well, that's great. You're gonna because you're gonna adverse select into the broken companies that are looking for a CEO, mm-hmm. and there was something very natural about Jess's evolution to the role because it sort of was happening as a course of how she was scaling inside of the company. Um, and I, the, the ambition to be a CEO is a, is it can be a dangerous thing. But I actually curious as you think about now that you're in the role, mm-hmm. how's it different than maybe you what your role was before, and what's un, what's been unexpected yeah. about it?
2: <laughs> well. You know, I think the role of the CEO definitely changes as the company gets yeah. larger, right? And I went into this assuming like, okay, there's a set of things we need to do in the next, I don't know, at least a year, maybe two years, three years, that I think I can do. I think I know how to do these things or I can learn some of them. But I also went into it thinking like there may be a point at which I might not be the right CEO anymore. Yeah. Like maybe taking the company public requires a different sort of person. Yeah. So I definitely went in with it that way. So I I agree like you don't want to just be like, I don't, you have to be the CEO. It, it's yeah. about... What does the company need and what are you actually good at? Yeah. And this was sort of the right period for me. Um, things that have been unexpected, uh, I thought I would be able to spend a lot more time working on the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to doing a lot of the other duties, that's turned out to be not the case. I spend so much of my time recruiting and meeting and thinking about architecting the right team to get what we done. We need yeah. done. Yeah. Uh, so that's been a little bit surprising. As a control freak, <laughs> it's been difficult sometimes to let go of some of the product responsibilities. I was the VP of product before that. But we have an awesome PM, Rachel, who like it took me, it took us a while to figure out how to you know, delegate, how to let things go, um, but I think we've, we've, we've gotten that down. So that's been, that's been surprising. Um, oh, the amount of external stuff that, that I have to do has also been a little surprising. I'm more of an introvert by nature, so having to do that is not, the most natural thing, but it comes up a lot. So it's something you just sort of have to push and do, yeah.
1: How about um, your priorities? And so part of this is a bit of a day in the life. Mm. Uh, how do you think about your week, your, your, your or you know, any period of time, and as a CEO, how do you think about setting those priorities?
2: Mm. Well, we have a strategic set of priorities for the company. And you know there are parts of the things that are going very, very well that don't need attention. The important thing is I think you want to design the company to operate like as a series of like blocks that work well and spin on their own mm-hmm. and have APIs to the other groups, <laughs> kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I, I look for the parts that are not you know that need attention or need help, and try to spend my time there helping. And that might mean adding a new person or changing uh, changing a new process, or it might be the interface between two teams is not correct, so to rewrite the API. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, But a lot of the time now I'm spending on recruiting and just building parts of the team that aren't there yet. Like we've, Polyvore has product and engineering, we've got a sales team but we're actually missing a few functions. Like we don't have a marketing team, we don't have PR and that you know is, we've always done our marketing and growth through our community, which is a very powerful tool or powerful force. Like they go and tell their friends about the site and that's how we've grown. But now thinking about that being a function, like how do we build that? Searching for, we found a CFO. Like a lot of a lot of the time, just goes there. But I try to figure out where I'm needed, and then always make sure to pay some attention to product because that's like probably the thing I'm strongest at.
1: Yeah, and I think it's uh, that building the system. There's editing the team. People have used that as a you know some, sometimes you make the right right hires, sometimes you make the wrong hires, and it's a it's a really different role. Um, let me come back to if you were to introspect in the development of your career and some mistakes that you've made that that. Would be instructive maybe for the group to learn from mm. um, anything that stands out.
2: Oh, so many! <laughs> um, one of the big, the biggest mistakes I, I probably made early on was not talking to other entrepreneurs at all. Um, I was, you know, heads down, working really hard. I just every problem that we had, we sort of dealt with internally, and I think that can be a big mistake because. The only external data points you have about other companies are like things you read about on TechCrunch, where everything seems to be doing great. You know, it's all the positive stories, all the spin, all the overnight success stories. Um, at that time, Cora wasn't around, so I didn't have that as a resource. I remember I looked at Mark Andreessen's blog. That was probably one of the, the best resources. But I, I was very insular and so I didn't realize like, I didn't have enough perspective to know like, oh, the company's actually doing fine. In fact, we're doing better than many of the other startups out there. Or this problem that I have that feels like the end of the world um, is actually something that many other companies have gone through and survived. Or it's actually super common, like, everybody has that problem. Like, I didn't even realize that every time someone left the company, I thought, oh, my God, this is terrible. This must mean we're screwing something up. And now I realize that's a natural part of how companies evolve. (laughs) Um, So that was a big mistake. When I started to talk to other entrepreneurs, it was great for my mental health. (laughs) as well as for getting data points, solutions, um, ideas on how to fix things. So so that was a big, big mistake I think I made in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, Other things, a common thing, a common mistake I think most entrepreneurs make is being too slow to have someone leave, Mm -hmm. like you just want to, you know, you've invested in bringing someone on. They've left their awesome job at Google or Yahoo or somewhere else to join you, and it's not working for some reason. It might be role fit, it might be culture fit, but you just keep trying to make it work because you kind of you made a commitment to them, and they made a commitment to you. And you know, sometimes it's just not a fit, yeah. and you just need to move on. And It's better for them in the long run, and it's, and it's better for you. And it, that that was a hard lesson too.
1: The uh, shifting gears again, and we'll get to audience questions part of the CEO's job is to paint the vision of the future of the company. And, and I'd love to hear and I think the audience would benefit from hearing the future. what's the future for Polyvore look mm-hmm. like and um, what do you visualize as success for the company?
2: Yeah. So Peter talked about the uh, fashion magazine side of Polyvore. There's another sort of trend that we, we track nicely against, which I think is the evolution of e-commerce. So if you think about how e-commerce came about on the web, it was driven by categories like electronics, so buying a digital camera. And the way you think about buying a digital camera is, well, it's very research driven. You care about hard numbers and attributes like number of megapixels or price. Uh, And because of that, the e-commerce experience, the standard e-commerce experience is a search box and then a set of filters, like digital camera refined by 10 to 16 megapixels, under $500, and then you start to look at the reviews. And that's, if you, whether you're looking at a clothing site or anything on Amazon.com, that's sort of the standard UI. But there's actually a whole category of goods that you just don't buy that way. Like I, I have this, I, I bought this shirt, it's like a specific color. Um, it's actually got a huge hole in the back, which is kind of impractical, <laughs> but I just like it. That's my taste. I like this shirt and I like the particular brand that it came from. Um, so I'm buying this shirt based on my personal taste. Which is incredibly arbitrary and based on trends that evolve over time. Like I'm sure this shirt will be extremely uncool in ten years or two years. I don't know, but
1: it'll be cool again in ten years.
2: <laughs> in that's years right. Years. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, taste is always evolving. So I think there's a category of products that you buy based on taste. Yeah. And at Polyvore, we're trying to understand people's taste. So when people mix and match products they like, that's them giving us data, saying, "Hey, this product is cool. These two products go together." we can extract from that a trend, the hole in the back of your shirt trend or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and we can track that over time. So it's actually, our community is giving us tons and tons of data about taste and from there we can do all kinds of things like build a better shopping experience that's more discovery and browse based, um, have friends, recommend to friends what they're buying. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's sort of the, the what I see as the, the evolution of, of Polygon. It doesn't just apply to fashion, it's yeah. also you know the way you buy a sofa or wall decor, um, wedding items, but I think there's actually a lot of categories of of products that fall into this. So that's sort of where I see the the product vision going.
1: I've been really moved by the community you've built and some of the stories that come out of that. Um, (laughs) I'd love to hear your description of the community and call them users, but they're not really users, they're the creators on the site, and some of the personal stories that come out of that.
2: Yeah. So I think what people don't necessarily realize is when you look at Polyvore why people are making all these collages, these sets, you know, some people think, oh, they're you know, shopping for themselves. They're creating a personalized wish list of things that they want. That's not what they're doing. It's actually a form of self-expression. I think, especially for women, what you're wearing is sort of an, ex- you know, an extension of who you are. It's, sort of a, it's a form of self-expression. So a lot of these people are on the site for creative reasons, for self-expression reasons, and they're making friends and building a community. So we've heard all kinds of interesting stories from people in the community who've become friends. We recently had a... Um, a meetup in New York we flew members from, about 11 members from Brazil, France, uh, all over the U.S., Canada. You know, someone who had, she was from a small town in, in Canada and she'd never um, been in, she'd never ridden in a taxi before. We brought her to New York for fashions night out, which is a big sort of party on the streets of New York right before fashion week. Um, you know, limo ride, take her to the hotel, a great breakfast with everybody and then just seeing the stories that came out of that was, was really incredible. Like people saying, you know, I use polyvore as a form of self-expression. When my father passed away, you know, it was a way for me to sort of get therapy with, and support for the, from the other members or um, people making friends and one girl said, you know, I've actually in, I met someone on the site who I'm inviting to my wedding and that's the first time we're ever going to meet. <laughs> so it's really amazing when you, when you give people tools to express themselves and the ability to connect, they really form these, super strong relationships, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be through Facebook, they don't have to actually know each other that well, but you just sort of, in this self-expression environment, build real bonds, and that's sort of what's happened with our community. We pay a lot of attention to community management. Mm-hmm. We have a great community manager, Nadia, who actually talks to the members and meets them, and when there are issues, you know, sometimes she'll call them. We've sent flowers to people. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had someone who was, she was very ill, um, and we found her blog and we found a sweater that she wanted, so we bought her the sweater and we made a cup and we printed polyvore set on it and we sent it to her and you know, that's, that's, she was really touched. Her whole family sent us like a handwritten card, like little things like that. Those little touches, little human touches make a lot of difference, yeah.
1: yeah. We, uh, at a board meeting, uh, the last board meeting we had, they just showed us a video of the community members, they flew to New York and I think all of us were brought to tears that you underestimate the impact of empowerment on people. When, when they're given a voice where they didn't have a voice and a way to self-express, it, it shapes who they are, it's, it's, uh, it's in the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you're at the very tip of the pyramid mm-hmm. and um, they all had just such love for Polyvore and they were saying thank you and, and like, if you're an investor, you say, well, these are the people creating the content. We don't, not only do we not pay them, they're, they're madly in love with the company and yet, they're building the company. So it's, it's part of the, I think the future of uh, a lot of products in tapping into that creative power, harnessing it but making it, and we see the same thing at Yelp, Wikipedia never ceases to amaze me. The Wikipedians that been... i talked to Jimmy Wales at the beginning, 2002, 2003, to try and invest in Wikipedia, and he laughed at me. He's like, you know, last time we tried to invest in Wikipedia, we killed it because they—they they financed it as a company, and then they—they they quit because it didn't work. And then the community took over, and then it became Wikipedia. And there are people that were spending hundreds of hours a month curating at, at for no other you know um, value than the sense of. Uh, connectedness and, and greater good that it brought to you. So a great product experience is in touch with that, and I think it's one of the really powerful things that, that you've had going at Polyvore. Um, the last question I want to ask before shifting gears and getting questions from the audience, you know, I'm on your board, and this, this is a little awkward to ask this question, but how do you think about us, the, the board, you, the venture investors, and you can say what you want, <laughs> and, and, and where, as the CEO, you sort of sit in between a lot of different concentric circles and integrating them, how do you think about us, and then maybe you know describe the relationship for the audience? Because it'd be pretty interesting, and mm-hmm. I can I can dispute all the stuff. You can. <laughs>
2: um, so you know, part of being a first time entrepreneur, I never actually knew what to expect from a board, and so we've always had a great relationship. And it wasn't actually till very recently we had an experienced CFO join us, and she's been CFOing for fifteen years, and she's been on lots of boards. And she came to our board meeting, and she's like, "You have no idea how awesome your board is. They are so you know thoughtful, strategic." You know, they're on the same page, like, they don't, you know, give you, they give advice just at right, just the right level. And I, I, I guess I didn't even realize that. <laughs> um, I've, yeah, I mean, I think our board has always been incredibly supportive. Um, I think the, the important thing is, is knowing what your entrepreneur is good at yeah. and where to leave them to do their magic <laughs> in the one area that, probably one area that they're good at, and then how to get them help. Right, And I think Peter has always been really good at identifying like, okay, you guys, I'm not going to tell you how to run the product or engineering. You seem to be doing a good job there. But have you thought about this as a revenue model? Or have you talked to this person? So a lot of the introductions and new relationships, that kind of stuff has always been really helpful. Also, our board has been incredibly helpful with recruiting. Um, Like Peter often takes the time to meet some of the the VP candidates that we're doing. He's great at closing and selling. As you can see, he sold me pretty (laughs) amazingly. Um, So he's always been very helpful with that.
1: Uh, you're, you're, it's uh, she's too kind. I mean, boards, particularly at a company like this, when we invested, it had three people for the first phase. I would say, you think about do no harm, and you know, we don't boards don't make companies; they don't they can break companies for sure. Um, and for that first eighteen twenty four months, we didn't really have board meetings in the classic sense. There wasn't really an operating plan. There wasn't any of the kind of classic stuff because. You have a little flicker of a flame. And if you try and put the, the structure that we have at, say, like the Twitter board, where there's a real infrastructure, the board materials go out a week in advance, it's a really disciplined, that, that wouldn't have been appropriate. And so a big part of a company, and I think what Jess is going through, which is what I think would be fun for all of you to watch her scale as the CEO, a CEO, company at 30 people is radically different than a company at 150. And that that, you know, well, three to thirty is a huge leap, but, but 30 to 150, which is the trajectory you're on means you get to a point you don't know everyone on the company, you have to really obsess on building the system that builds the system, look for friction points, try and remove them. And that's very different than the very at the beginning, where at the beginning you're trying to do things quickly, have experiments, not be bureaucratic, and, and some degree of process has to come in when you get to 150 people that didn't exist at thirty. And that's where a board, I think, I hope, you know, we become more effective at saying, okay, there's certain things you want to recruit in, expertise. You know, if you're um, you know, if you're in the credit business, you you probably want to. If you're doing payments, you probably want to recruit in someone who's an expert at fraud. If you're doing e-commerce, you probably want to recruit in someone who's an expert at global logistics, <laughs> things that you know. Mm. And I think in a startup, you know, the finance function, you know, you can innovate around it. But you know, Cheryl, the person they recruited, would have been the CFO at AdMob. And there's a, there's an equation in recruiting Cheryl that I remember, which is, you know, at first blush, she's like, "Well, I was at AdMob. You know, who are you? You are this company I've never heard of." And, and you have to have the confidence and belief in yourself, as, and Jess had this, and to say, when Cheryl spends enough time here, she can't not come. She'll be so seduced by what we've created. And, and Cheryl's like, ah, I'm not, I don't think so. And, uh, and we didn't quit. And there's a great story where we said, well, let's, let's do an interim role. And because we all had this confidence in the company, that if she spends three months in the company, she won't be able to leave. And I think it was about two months and Maybe twenty days. You know, she called up and said, "Okay, I'm going to join." But you know, it wasn't it wasn't easy to get me. But um, well, let me shift gears to, to, to well, actually, one last question for you: advice in in if you were to rewind the clock, put yourself into this audience. Anything that we haven't talked about that you wish you'd known, and that you can impart as wisdom to the to the people in front yeah,
2: of you? Yeah. Um, well. I would repeat some of the things I had said already, like yeah. take the more challenging path, yeah. you know, optimize for learning as much as possible. Yeah. Um, the other thing, which has become a company mantra at, at Polyvore, is do a few things well. If you're going to start your own thing, you know, maybe you have a grand, grand vision of like, all the different features it's going to have and all the different you know, revenue lines you're going to do and you know, keep, keep that vision, but do one piece of that first and do it really, really, really well. It's so much better to do a few things well than many things poorly. Um, for Polyvore, the very first thing that we did was the Polyvore Editor, which is a tool where you mix and match and you can create the collages. And there were actually other companies at the time and there still are. There's probably 40 uh, people, 40 different companies out there that have a Polyvore Editor. But we just focused on building that and making that experience really fun and really addictive and really fast and smooth um, and that was what brought users in and then we added more features. But if you have a crappy editor feature and a crappy, you know, profile and all these other features that are just not that good or a little bit too slow or clunky, like you will lose, you will bleed users. So just really, really focus on doing, like identify the one thing that matters and just make it as great as possible, like polish all the details.
1: I'd I'd amplify that point. It's lost in a lot of education and entrepreneurship, the benefit of hyper-focus, because it comes across as being excessively narrow. And there's this tension of, well, if you're that focused, do not you are supposed to go after big opportunities? And, and if you perfect the editor, you know, is that, is that going to be the transformational social commerce company? And the story behind every one of the success stories that I can relate to, be it Facebook, hyper-focused on the college market, probably were focused on the niche that you guys started in, Yelp focused on 27-year-olds in San Francisco writing restaurant reviews. Their competitors were, doing the 27 million local businesses all had a homepage day one. Let's light up the whole network. And, and Yelp said, no, let's just do this really well. And mm-hmm. building on success is a lot easier than trying to you know, boil the ocean, whatever term you want to use. In compounding on success and having that internal culture where you're disciplined about it, defines I think so many of the success stories from the losers in the category. Um, well, let me shift to the audience and... and
2: oh, uh, I, thought of, wait, I thought of two more things. <laughs> no,
1: please.
2: Um, one, don't go it alone. I'm really, really lucky to have an awesome set of founders that I work with. Like, I don't know what I would do without them. Like, it's it's hard. It's really hard. You go through all these crazy ups and downs, and everything feels like it's like you know agony and then ecstasy. And you want someone. You need a partner to go through that with because otherwise, you'll just you'll you know go insane. Um, the the other thing is um, just if you don't have an idea, like I've seen a lot of this. I, I've seen a lot of this lately where I just want to be a be at a startup, I just want to co-found a company, I'm just going to do something, I'm going to quit my job and just do something. But if you don't have an idea that you're passionate about, it's actually really hard to get through those ups and downs. Yeah. Like, you will just discard the idea immediately if you don't feel really strongly about it. So if you don't have that idea yet, keep thinking about it, but in the meantime, go do something productive. Like, go to another startup and learn, at least start learning, like, how they run it, learn, you know, how to manage a P&L, or yeah. how to be a product manager, just go do something rather than try to sit in a, room with, with a whiteboard with your co-founder and a computer, like being like, all right, what's our ideas? like, I think, I think that's really hard. Right.
1: Um, the, the falling in love with the purpose of a company, it's, I see people go from human to superhuman when that happens. And I think when you, you fell in love before you came, so yeah. it was very much you were, you know, in that sense a founder of the, the core mission. But when you recruit people and they, you're in touch, there's a lot of talk of the why, you know, the how and the what of a company, and the really great company spend a lot of time on why do you exist. And those, Questions of why are we doing this? It'd be surprised how many people answer it with a blank stare. Well, I wanted to do a startup. I want to be an entrepreneur. I went, versus the answers you get from Jeff Bezos or you know from from you or from you know uh, I love Twitter's why you know Twitter brings you closer and they have they have a very expansive idea. Well, we don't finish that sentence. We let our users finish that. Mm-hmm. And as this compounding sense of that's the emotion of the company and um, it's it's sometimes easy to make it more mechanical and say okay well this is what one does when they start a company and lose the magic and. When it's there, it's amazing. You start to close candidates you didn't think you could close, you continue to work long hours and feel a sense of direction. So. Well, let me open it up for questions and uh, yeah.
0: Hey, Peter, Greg Tart, I see you again. Jess, nice to meet you. My question is I'm on
1: the board of uh, Glimpse and AdMobius and a uh, lot of uh, tensions arise both among the founders and also even among the board members from time to time on different directions. So I wanted to ask you, Jess, in your role how you've been able to moderate disputes or heated differences among founders, (coughs) maybe with an example, and Peter on your side with other board members in in this company or or past companies, how you've been able to resolve
2: some of those issues?
1: So to repeat the question um, for Jess and for me, how do we deal with resolving conflict and tensions that exist between founders and and other directors and maybe founders too?
2: Yeah, I mean we've definitely had sets of strategic disagreements um, at the company. Uh, when it's between the founders, like, it's it's harder because you both have to be there, right? If it's from a new executive you're going to hire, you can actually screen for a lot of those things. Like, if they say, hey, I think the direction of the company should be this, and you're like, wait, 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 that's, we, we don't want to become, you know, we don't want to carry inventory and ship stuff to a Polyvore members, you can screen for that ahead of time. But when it's with the founders, that's a little bit more difficult. Um, so we, at the end of the day, I think you have to be on the same page to the rest of the company, right? So you have to have a unified front. Um, One thing we've tried is, and it doesn't really happen that often, but like with an example, maybe how, when we were, earlier days, like how we were going to make money, we sort of set a time window on these things. Like, all right, we don't necessarily agree about whether we should sell virtual goods to our users or do brand, sell advertising on the site. But we're going to pick one and that might be influenced by who's actually going to spend the time to work on it. (laughs) And then um, give ourselves a window to prove that out as, in that, you know, within that window of time. And that, you know, at least there's an agreement around that. And then after that point, you can go back and like, all right, we totally failed at this. Like, what do you want to do now? Let's go back or let's continue. You can sort of reevaluate it. But to give yourself that, that framework, um, I think is, is one way to, to, to solve it.
1: Yeah, this is one of, the, one of the areas where I think you can learn, hyper-learn um, conflict resolution. There's all sorts of ways to study how one does it. And um, in my experience, there's all varieties of conflict, but they end up shaping your daily existence because those are the things that stress you out. And um, the first step always in conflict resolution, my experience, is you got to pe- get people focused on the right goal or agenda and you know, you can find situations where people let their self-interest get in front of the company interest, that's easy to spot. And, and that happens with directors, where directors say, look, you know, I'd like to sell the company or not sell the company. And, and you have to say, okay, you have to think about the shareholder here as a third party, this is a bit of the you know um, the Rawlsian moment of you know disinterest and saying, okay, pretend like you could be anybody. What's the right thing for the company? And getting someone to focus beyond themselves to that higher good can really be an antiseptic for most of the problems that emerge. Um, the bigger issues in conflict I think come up between executives that are peers, and you know this is a routine problem where engineering wants X, product wants Y, sales wants Z, and it. it You know, a lot of what we do in working with the CEO is to help them be the hinge between those executives. And there's this moment that occurs in a great executive team where they feel shared, interlocking objectives. And when you see that, it's like a soccer team moving in perfect flight. You say, something special happened here. So it's rare. And when you don't see it, you say, okay, well, you guys got to get on the same page. And it's very clear from this board meeting you've got conflict that's, you know, being talked about, but a lot of it not talked about, where there's passive aggressiveness. And so, by, by trying to get the foreground more clear and saying, these are the things we're committed to beyond ourselves, here's how I have to be successful by making that other person successful, and here's what they have to do to make me successful, they're interlocking dependencies, y- you start to move above the, the, the two individuals going at each other's throat. But it's, it's, uh, it sort of defines our existence, and so there's not a single answer I can give other than you, know, you, you can study it and study it aggressively, and I think it serves you well.
2: The, the other thing is I think you need to start with the assumption that it is better to move in a direction versus not to move at all, right? So if you have one vector, one person wants to go this way, other vectors this way and you're not moving, like that is the worst state to be in, like a state of inaction. At least it's better to go in that direction somehow. Like, so I think we have that understanding. So we, when we get into a gridlock, it's like, okay, we have to solve this because the worst possible thing is to continue to be arguing about it forever.
1: This, this thing, Jess, right, one of the traits of successful first-time CEOs and actually one of the death knells is decision making. A lot of times people come to the role of CEO because they're smart. Everyone in this room is smart, does well, likes to think about complex problems. Making a decision is something different. And intelligence can at times (laughs) be an enemy for decision making because there's always what if. And CEOs that freeze in decision making very quickly create politics on their team because if they can't decide, the team says, well, I have to use different means of influence because I'm not getting any direction from the CEO. And at times you you say, look, I'm the CEO, I don't know if I want to pick, but it turns out, it, just as Jess says, if you don't make a decision and give them direction, then those problems will bloom into something much worse. And so um, it's the old, there's comments from field generals and generals at war saying better to make you know, 100 decisions and have 51 be right and 49 wrong than to make one decision a day. And I think that yeah, absolutely is true, so true for a CEO because you just never have enough information. Yeah, you
2: move really fast. Yeah.
0: yeah. Please. Yeah. So my question was that you talked about,
2: like, while starting up, you should think about, like, uh, having an idea that you're really passionate about but at the same time not start a company alone, like, have co-founders. So what, like, how is the process of finding a co-founder who is as pas- like ha- as passionate about the idea as you are? And, like, what are the other qualities apart from passion for the idea and the product that you should look for in a co-founder? Mm. So I, I, because I was at Google, I got exposure to a ton of people who, I would consider like, hey, we, we really get along, we work together, we think the same way about product design, right. Um, so I was able to meet a lot of people who I could consider starting a company with. So be, that's one reason to go to a larger environment first. Um, then I think the other thing that I've heard about, I don't know how successful it is, is this thing called founder dating, where you just sort of go to this mixer with all these people who want to start companies and sort of Sounds get to awful. know people. I have no <laughs> idea if it works, um, but that's what I've heard. Uh, in terms of what to look for, um, in addition to having passion about the same thing, I think you have to make sure you're motivated the same way, and you have the same philosophy around the, the core, whatever is going to be the core of the company. Like, an example of like philosophy mismatch is if you think, "All right, I want to run. I want this to be a product and engineering-driven company," and the other person's like, no, "No, no, I want this to be a sales business, business development-driven company." Like, that is a core mismatch that may, like break you guys apart at some point. So you have to screen for, for those kinds of things, like philosophical stuff. Or if one person, um, especially if, it, if it's two engineering people, one is like, all right, I, we just need to do whatever we need to do to get it done. Uh, Facebook, move fast and break things, like the willingness to break things, like we just got to move quickly and I don't, let's hack a little bit. Or you, you know, if you put that with Apple people who are more like, no, no, it has to be perfect. <laughs> don't release it until it's perfect. Like that is a, definite philosophy mismatch, and that's going to cause major problems for the two founders. So you have to screen for the things that are like your core values.
1: Um. Well, one thing I found seeing the best companies, the best companies always have more than one person where it's not a, a it, sometimes the external world thinks it's all person X, but um, I've studied a lot lately first-time CEOs that fail, that go on and do it a second time and succeed and there, there are many examples we can point to, obviously, Steve Jobs, but there's a long list of them. Studying what does the A-B test tell you? What do they do differently the second time? And a common theme, and it, it, is, it is the theme, is acute self-awareness. The second time around they say, I'm not this, this, and this, so I, I better find that in my partner. And if you're not a great master of execution, you can't assume that you're going to micromanage your way through scaling a business. And so. Um, I have an example now, a company I'm an investor in New Relic, where Lou, the second time around, uh, Lou said, "I need to, my co-founder needs to be a guy that can run engineering, because I love to ideate, I love to create these things, but if I have to run engineering day to day, and then he came to me and said, look, I need a guy who can run and scale sales. So that acute self-awareness where these, these three vectors of leadership, we, we talk about vision, relationship skills, and execution skills. It's, I haven't seen somebody that pegs the top of all three of those. You're probably long one, short one, and medium on the other. So the self awareness and identifying, okay, what am I really good at? What am I not good at? And mapping your co founder onto that means you don't end up in a situation where you have two founders that want to be the visionaries. That doesn't work. One of them won't be at the company if the company's successful over a period of time. And so that acute self awareness is this this is the A B test. What do you learn from someone who gets it right the second time versus the first time? And that's part of the learning process. Time for one more question, I think. How do you bl- blueprint good decisions? Hmm. How do you blueprint good decisions,
0: Jess? Yeah. Well,
2: the, the way we, we try to drive the strategy at, at Polyvore is we have clear overarching goals of, of what we need to do. Like these are, this is where the company is trying to go. And this is in particular the metric we're trying to move. So if you take the subjectiveness out of the question, Right, so you're like, all right, the, the, the metric we're trying to move is number of transactions that Polyboard drives a day. Let's say we pick that, then you give that to the team and say, this is the number you're trying to move and you can actually clearly see whether they're doing well or not. And after that we usually set aside like a list of projects that we think <laughs> will move that, move the needle on that metric. And you know, we may be wrong, like we might set that at the beginning of the quarter and the end we've done something completely different. But as long as the team has still moved that metric, um, that success. So I think you have to structure the teams in such a way where everyone has a clear set of goals they're trying to hit that are actually measurable and that takes a lot of the, the day-to-day decision-making becomes much more clearer because if you're working on something, you're like, should we do this? I don't know if it's going to work. You can just try to test for that um, or try, yeah, try to, you can evaluate it based on that, that metric. Does that answer your question?
1: In the the venture business, we make decisions in all sorts of ways. Um, I would tell you, in new investment decisions, uh, it needs to feel-there needs to be something in that decision that feels really uneasy. And and it sounds counterintuitive, but um, I look back to our investment in Uber, boy, the total addressable market for black cars and at a price point that Uber had, we thought, Boy, it could be a tiny market at the time, there were maybe six hundred black cars in San Francisco that were licensed that we could t- that Uber could t- tap into and you had to take this huge leap of faith that you could expand the market and at the moment i don 't know what numbers they 've published, but it's there are already more black cars on the street at this point in time than there were total licensed black cars in San Francisco at the time we invested and any great investment has that moment of just counterintuitive angst in the fact that you still want to do it despite that tells me the blueprint of that decision was right, because if we just did the obvious things in the venture business, we'd be making iPads and get killed by Apple. Um, Polyvore, boy, it was non obvious and, and um, <laughs> it may still be, <laughs> time <laughs> will tell. Um, I, think, I think that's it. Um, yeah, well, thank you.